today is March 8th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Zen Falks. He is an associate professor of biology at the University of Texas Pan American in Edinburgh, Texas. Um, spelled with no H. Edin- yeah. Do you pronounce it Edinburgh? Or is it it is Texas Edinburgh. Fied? It is, yes, it is the Texas fied version. It's not Edinburgh. Um, no, it is not. That would just sound weird <laughs> in Spanish. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Zen is an invertebrate neurothologist whose focus is on crustacean sensory motor systems and nociception. Hello. Hello. Yes. And you've actually brought your student with us today. Can you introduce her? I, I can. This is, uh, I, joining me today is Sakshi Puri. And she's joined me today because she was my partner in the project of that I was talking about today and about nociception. In which we will talk about today. So um, around the room we've got... Oh, hello, Sakshi. Hi. Voice. Hi. Um, around the room we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got one of our PhD students, Denard Simmons. Hello. Great. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, Suzanne, I want to... Uh, so recently your lab is working to characterize nociception in crustacean species like um, shrimp and crayfish. And, uh, and before, before we get to the actual work, I just I thought it would be useful to talk about two things. First, um, I thought it would be, be really useful to me to, for you to define nociception sure. and talk about uh, whether we can make distinctions between the response to a noxious stimuli, stimulus and the subjective experience of pain, because that's right. always sort of uh, conf- confounded. And um, second, you've argued that the study of nociception in lower, um, uh, in sort of uh, invertebrates, I guess, mm-hmm. in general, has lagged far behind the study of other sensory systems. And so why, why is that the case, first of all, and do you think it's changing? So let's start with nociception first okay. and foremost. So first of all, nociception, actually, the, I think it's maybe easier to say what nociceptors are, because those are the sensory neurons. And so nociceptors are sensory neurons that are tuned to tissue damage. So they are specifically responding to things that will either damage tissue or would damage tissue if it was prolonged over a long period of time. So these are typically neurons that are responding to high temperatures. And I mean, not just like high, it's kind of like warm in here temperatures. Could you turn the air conditioning on? But, you know, 45 degrees Celsius, say, or really, really extreme colds. These are neurons that are responding to things like extremes of pH, so acids, bases. These are neurons that are responding to mechanical damage, so pinches, pokes, prods, and to certain kinds of, of chemicals. And in terms of how, why are, is this sensory system not as well studied as other kinds of sensory systems, we were talking about this over lunch, and we've sort of sometimes think that uh, one of the reasons that there has not been a lot of research on this is that maybe people don't want to know the answer because it's actually in a lot of ways it's very convenient to um, believe that animals do not have nociceptors because that is tied into the the whole question of whether animals experience pain and Having said that, now I will answer another thing that you asked me, which is what is the difference between nociception and pain? And the example that I thought of in preparation for coming here today is that the difference between nociception and pain is like the difference between hearing and music. They're obviously related, 
but one is just purely about the sensory information and the other is more complicated and it's much more about the uh, the cognitive experience, the thinking experience, the perception of certain things. So you can have pain without nociception. You have phantom limb pain. In the same way that you can have a musical experience without sound. You can have an earworm, as they, they call it, where you have that song that is stuck in your head. Um, and so that's kind of the distinction between those, those two things. They're clearly related, but they... One is much more complicated, much more fraught with questions about consciousness and perception than the other is. And so is it possible answering your last question, because you have, I'm going to try and answer all of your questions, is have, do I think that the uh, study of, of this is changing? It is slowly changing. I think in the last 10 years or so, there's been um, increasing awareness that Invertebrates do have nociceptors, but there's still a long, long way to go. Why? Why is it changing? What's happened? It's, What's there's been a few, a few things um, in the genetic model organisms that people are using for to study neuroscience. Uh, when you have something like C. elegans where there's only 302 neurons and everybody is trying to, all the C. elegans labs are trying to find something to do, <laughs> uh, it's like, hey, wonder if they do nociception, uh, I think comes up. So in the C. elegans and fruit flies, there's been a lot of progress on tracking nociception through genetics because they have the advantage of complete genomes and all of those genetic tools that have been developed over the last couple of decades. And so they've been getting at the nociception question, not through, not really as a neuroscience question, but as a behavioral genetics question. And that is sort of leading into getting back into the intervening neurons, I think. So, so are you interested in this idea of inferring pain in species? I mean, or are we just talking about this? I'm very interested in it, and particularly I'm interested in explaining to people why I won't do it. Because I'm always telling people, because people will always ask me the, the question of, you know, does the lobster feel pain when it gets tossed into the pot of boiling water at a restaurant or at somebody's home? And I will usually say, I don't know, because for me that is... Uh, that is just too hard of a question, and I'm just not that good a scientist. I'm not that smart. Mm -hmm. um, it's too complicated. But getting at this question of, well, do they have particular sensory neurons that are responsible for particular, you know, will respond to particular kinds of stimulus like extremes of temperature? That I can answer. That is a more solvable scientific problem. And, you know, what I think about these things personally is, you know, well, everybody, um, you know, can have their own particular thought about it, but scientifically, that is not a question that I think I can handle. Not yet. But isn't there a version of that? I mean, as a neurothologist, you can you can try to figure out what uh, what's the the behavioral importance of these stimuli and whether they're sensitive to things. Sure. There's specific things that are in the uh, in the environment that they're tuned to. Uh, that would be noxious for them. That might right. not be noxious for some other organism. I mean, and you could turn that around. So, and you could turn around to, to thinking about. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting then open question about what is uh, 
why is painful what is pain in uh, humans or mammals about why do we find certain things painful or more painful than mm -hmm. others or mm -hmm. individual differences and the whole idea of uh, evolving pain I mean this is a separate again it's a separate question right right uh, well, you can think about the behavioral aspect of, of yeah. pain, which is the kind of the kind and, of and again, that's typically when people are talking about just the straight behavioral aspect of pain. That's where they usually refer to that as nociception, right? Which is a nociceptor is something that is tuned to tissue damage, and nociception is a behavioral response to tissue damage. Um, it's just sometimes a little easier for me to think about the receptors in in the first place. So that means. Um, some kind of escape response or something like that. And then people infer uh, ex the experience of pain when they see the escape response or the avoidance response. It's, well, it's sometimes in escape responses. It's definitely, uh, you know, changes in behavior. So when they've done some experiments on, say, nociception in, in fish, they don't see the classic escape responses that you see, like sea starts, which there's been a lot of neuroethology on that. The fish do very different kinds of behaviors. Um, so if you give them a little bit of um, bee venom and put that on their, their skin, they will show signs where they will um, sometimes rub against you know, surfaces in the tank where they, that bee venom has been applied. Uh, sometimes they will, uh, instead of being up in the, the water column, they'll be more likely to be down on the, the gravel surface of their tank. And so there's definitely these changes of behavior. It's not, not necessarily always an escape response, though. Because there's no way but, you can yeah. escape that bee venom anyway. In that particular case, yeah. So is it is it meaningful at all to look at... Uh whether these responses are graded in response to things like enkephalin or endogenous opioid systems. I mean, do crustaceans even even have these sorts of things? And, and can you look at degrees of analgesia? Of analgesia, that? yeah. I mean, this is actually another thing that I think in a way led me to this, this question because another really common question on the crustacean forums that I frequent is how do you anesthetize a, cr a crustacean? Mm -hmm. And again, this is actually one of those things, it's a really commonly asked question among various crustacean biologists because they want to do particular sorts of experiments and they want to you know, knock the animal out temporarily so they can apply markers or whatever are onto the animal. And so it's very convenient to be able to anesthetize animals. And it's all over the map, what will anesthetize a crustacean. Some things work really well, other things don't work very well. And, and a lot of people are always trying to, you know, are trying to figure out, well, what, what can we do to knock those animals out? I don't, I think there has been some research on analgesics and opioids in invertebrates, and I'm thinking particularly in mollusks. Um, in crustaceans, I can't remember. Sakshi, do you remember mm -hmm. reading anything of that? I don't of think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I know that there has been some research done on those kinds of compounds in invertebrates, but I can't remember which ones. I think it's the snails. Okay, so I, I want to, if nobody else has anything on that, on that specific topic, I, I'd kind of like to back up a little bit because uh, we don't usually have many ethologists, neuroethologists right. here. And um, so, my very simplistic understanding of neuroethology is this 
Um, and it may be kind of archaic, because I'm not very up on it. But it's, it's this idea that nervous systems are evolved to produce um, behaviors based on environmental context, or these, these yeah. environmental niches are right. And that historically, much of the work has been propelled, at least in part, um, or informed by Crow's principle, right? Is that yes. how I'm pronouncing it right? Which I've heard it pronounced different ways. Sometimes I've seen it Krog or Krog. He was Scandinavian, so I don't know. I don't I, have a clue how Scandinavian I think I've seen it. I think I've most frequently seen it as Krog, as oh. rhyming with frog. Okay, right. Krog. It's more, I guess, dramatic. I don't in, know. In any case. In any case. So that's, I guess that's the idea that, um, that, that there, there's, there's one particular animal that's best suited for a particular um, to study a particular biological problem based yes. on its its evolution and adapt you know adaptation. So um, you know for example like bats and echolocation or mm-hmm. um, I guess honeybees or you know and, and social behavior or navigation. So that to me seems very reductive and I don't know if it, it still holds that that's sort of one of the defining principles in neuroethology. And what you're doing seems to be exactly the opposite, um, where you're sort of connecting the dots across phyla to sort of look at commonality. And I was wondering if you could say something about Ooh, that. Ooh, that's, that's an interesting question because I see it, it uh, I really talk all, all with my students a lot about the Krog Principle and when I, I teach my neurobiology course, it's kind of one of the themes that runs all the way through the, the course. And, uh, and I sort of see it, I suppose, in the uh, a broader context of um, paying attention to the circumstances that the animal finds itself in, um, in the sense that, okay, well, why is it particularly good to study hearing in bats or barn owls? Well, they have a particular evolutionary history, they have a particular lifestyle and context and, and so forth. And so in terms of, and I think that the only way that you can really under, understand that to, is not just looking at that particular species, but you also have to understand something about its relationships to other kinds of animals. So barn owls have particular structures in their, their brain, and so do bats that are involved with nighttime hearing. But in order to really put that into a sense of context, you've got to at least have an understanding that other birds and other mammals don't do that, right? You've got to have an understanding that this that this is a particular adaptation. So you you've got to understand that evolutionary history of that animal at least to some degree, I think. So why study nociception in crustaceans? Why study nociception in crustaceans? Um, because. First of all, because of the lobster and the pot problem. <laughs> because people are interested in it because that is just, it is a recurring question yeah. for, for so many people. And people are genuinely interested in that answer, right? And the other th- thing is, um, and it, there's, there are actually a lot of policy implications about that question. Exactly. Not, and not just the obvious seafood restaurant kinds of, of questions. Um, although heaven knows there's money to be made there because there's actually, there was a business a year or two ago that announced that it had a new way to kill lobsters that would dispatch lobsters in a more humane way called the crustacean, <laughs> Where instead of just tossing them into the pot of boiling water, they would electrocute them. And that was, a, you know, 
a bit, that was a for-profit business venture. So it's it's a question, you know, the answer to which, you know, small business outcomes depend on. But more seriously, not that that's not a serious issue, but more more seriously, um, that question of do crustaceans have no susceptors, no susception, and how that informs pain really comes into play when you start thinking about animal care issues because I was at a conference last year showing some of this this work and a woman from Europe came up and in Europe they had seen some of the other other papers about nociception uh, which was indicating that they crustaceans do have nociception and there was discussions about policy that was going to basically put all crustaceans, not just like the crabs and lobsters, but all the crustaceans, uh, sort of moving them up the chain of animal care, like in terms of what is necessary to care for animals. And this woman was talking to me and she said, look, it, we use water fleas, Daphnia, for water quality monitoring. And that's a huge issue. That's like thousands and tens and tens of thousands of these little itty bitty teeny tiny crustaceans you know you think about all the water quality monitoring that's going on all over Europe and if you suddenly have to treat all those water fleas with the same level of care as a mouse that's a big issue that's a big policy yeah, consequence yeah. right so there's those kinds of, of policy questions that are are important in in answering those kinds of, of, of questions. I think that'd be really that'd be great. That'd be really interesting uh, if, for example, you had to do uh, you had uh, those kind of animal care issues with fruit flies, because this is something that happens in people's kitchen with their rotten bananas and stuff. So do you ask <laughs> the scientists to like yeah. do you anesthetize your fruit flies when you like swat them or like put them in the garbage? And then why not? They you know they're the same kind of thing. I mean something that that you know everyday yeah, people then actually really have to think about well where do you cut right. the, the, the thing I, and I, I honestly I am perfectly good with scientists being held to higher standards than the person swatting a fruit fly over their banana. It, you know, we should be held to higher standards, but not ridiculously higher standards. And I think that you do reach the point of like, okay, this is a ridiculously higher standard that we're being asked to maintain than the public at large. Well, that's how we've already passed that many times over, and I would say <laughs> the, the crustacean, the field of crustacean neurobiology should tread Lightly, they don't want to put themselves in a situation where they are harassed oh, yeah. day and night, like the people who study mammals are. Uh, so I think this would be a point to, for Sakshi to tell her story about after we Sakshi co-authored a, a paper with me um, in in Plus One, and as I said, this is why she is is here. Um, could you tell us about what happened? Yeah, um, I got this sort of a bizarre email um, from PETA, actually, uh, talking about my research, but not, I mean, I could tell that they didn't actually read the paper. They kind of sort of just went through it and saw the word pain, I guess. So the title poses a question. The title of that paper doesn't answer the question in the title. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's a and misleading. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so what is the question? What's the title? Do 
crustaceans? No, I don't think it's going to do crustaceans. I brought the reprints. Yeah, it's actually a kind of a long title. Do they have no susception? I mean, is the is the is the bottom line, and so yeah. The ruffle, answer. ruffle, ruffle <laughs> on the podcast. Do decapod crustaceans have no susceptors for extreme pH? So it's actually a fairly um, specific title. We're not saying something like "Do crustaceans feel pain?" We're actually sorry. We're actually asking a fairly specific question, and we're looking at extreme pH and seeing whether they would. Um, whether that affects them at all or not. And I got this sort of a kind of almost a mean letter saying that, you know, your results are implicating things that would hurt, you know, organisms. And So talk about your results for a second. Just summarize the results. Well, in the first paper, and we've been working at more results afterwards, the first paper we were looking at extreme pH, um, sodium hydroxide and hydrochloric acid, and we were looking to see whether the organisms would in all three species would groom more uh, when they're applied, when the acids and bases are applied. And we found that there was no significant effect all across the board, basically. And we did some physiology to sort of back that up, and it was all consistent. So it would seem that they don't respond to any of this. And I can see how people can sort of just interpret it as, oh, they don't feel pain, and and those kinds of things, but we were very careful when we were actually writing the paper to say that's not what we're saying at all. We, this, this, we actually think this is the most important sentences in the paper. We want to make it clear that we are not claiming that crustaceans do not have nociceptors. We are not claiming crustaceans do not feel pain. So, Sounds pretty vague. <laughs> exactly. So, but I mean, we, so we, we really were trying to be, we knew that there was the possibility that people would look at this and interpret it as making those claims that these animals don't have nociceptors and that they don't feel pain. And we really, that's why we explicitly said we have a limited question here. Don't over-interpret what we've said. Right. And, I mean, we had very long conversations about things like that. And we were, because we'd been seeing news articles that misinterpret research all the time. And that's something we were trying to be careful. (laughs) We were trying to be very, you know. As I said, it was sort of the start of this whole project was misinterpreted and stupid news articles that would claim things like crustaceans don't have brains. And that annoyed me to no end. Yeah. So I got this like sort of a mean letter saying you shouldn't be doing this and you're sort of, you know, which surprised me because I didn't think working, first of all, with crustaceans, you know, would elicit that response. And I think the first reaction I had was, well, go to Louisiana. Why are you bothering me? They, they throw animals in boiling water. And I, I didn't quite get it. And then I heard from other people who've been working on nociception that is something that happens fairly often, especially if you're working with pain-related things. So I think it's kind of unfortunate, personally, that you would get targeted. But I don't know. I just kind of looked at it as, well, somebody else. I had an extra view on my paper, so somebody saw it. That's what happened. (laughs) They must have clicked on it. So they, um, you know, uh, Salma brought up earlier the the idea of commonality and in nociception pathways. So, you know, is there an opiate pathway or something like that? Um, that might be asking a lot uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the similarity of 
nervous system organization. But how about the you know the receptors on nociceptors, the capsaicin receptors, right. and that sort of thing? Uh, might we look for those genes being expressed, or the the crustacean homologue of genes like that, and yeah. and find something out that way? The, definitely the. Well, the Drosophila painless gene is in the same family. I, I think it might, there may even be a homologue, a mammalian homologue. I can't remember the exact relationship um, because it's this part of this transient receptor potential family, which is a fairly large gene family. Um, and in insects, there are about depending on the species that you look at, because there's been several insect genomes sequenced, they have within this TRIP-V family either four or five genes. In Crustacea, there's only one crustacean genome, which is Daphne, which I mentioned before, the water flea. And in them, there's only one of those genes. So... And of course, it might not be the homologue or the equivalent to the one that's implicated in nociception in Drosophila. So, in that sense, we know a little bit that the the. But, no, but then, of course, it's like, well, we only have the one crustacean genome, and I, you know, some of the, I, yesterday there were some people who were going, oh, the the gorilla genome has been s- sequenced. Yawn. Another genome. It's so boring. And I'm going, hey, you do not get to be bored by genomes until I have my freaking crayfish genome. <laughs> then you can be bored. Because I keep going, oh, we are so swamped in data. We're doing so much genome work. It's like, where's my crayfish genome? But I'm not bitter. <laughs> so, actually, so how much do we know about the... Uh Say the mammalian nociceptors in terms of they are they is nociceptors one class or are they specialize out of each separate there's sensory set, There's a, a set of different kinds of neurons. So the ones that are sort of best known are C fibers, uh, which are unmyelinated axons with endings in the the skin. Then there are alpha fibers. And there's like a couple of different categories of C fibers. I can't remember remember all of them. C fibers are definitely the ones that have been the most studied, and they kind of have uh, what I think of as some of the features that you see in other nociceptors in other species as well, uh, namely that they tend to respond to multiple stimuli, high temperature mechanical stimuli, acids and bases, and particular chemicals which open them up. Um, but, and this actually gets into, uh, you, because you asked me before about, well, why study nociceptors in crustaceans in particular? Uh, one thing about those fibers, from a physiological point of view, that you would like to be able to do is presumably record like at the site of the stimulus, right? So basically at the nerve terminals where all the action is going and you're generating the receptor potential. And as far as I know, there was a review paper that came out a couple of years ago and said this has never been done. The neurons are just too small. The nerve endings are too small. And crustacean neurons are unfairly large in that regard. So if we can figure out what the nociceptors are, we have a much better chance of studying that physiological transduction pathway. And so if we take a section through yeah. a human skin, we can see all these different kinds of fibers that yeah. look different. And then later it turned out 
this was, I guess, a long time ago, but it turned out that those could be identified and associated with certain kinds of uh, stimuli. Uh, maybe not perfectly, but mm -hmm. uh, in, as classes. So if, if we were to look at uh, crayfish skin, or whatever is right. the closest equivalent we could come up to for that. Lots of hairs, basically. Then, uh, then would we see a variety of different kinds of fibers innovating that? Um, that might that might carry different kinds of information the way the different fibers do in our skin. Ooh, um, there's lots of well, in yeah, crustaceans don't have skin because they have an exoskeleton, and the major there's a, a few ways that they get sensory information from the outside, and one of the major ones is that they have hairs which are innervated in some way, shape, or, or form. Um, and they have different ways that they're innervated. Not all of them are innervated. Uh, some are mechanical, some are chemical, and, and, and so forth. Um, how so maybe much, instead, of, instead it, of different receptors mingling together, we sh should be looking at ooh. different hairs. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that becomes a question, too, of you know whether... You know, in some of these cases where you've got mixed nerves and, and so forth. So um, at, at this point, whether we'll be able to track them down in, in that way, oh, I don't know. So even the histology of it hasn't really advanced. Oh, people uh, people have done, uh, have done that, some of that work. It, you know, there's quite a bit known about uh, sensory hairs uh, in, in crustaceans and so forth. But nobody... Uh, as I said, has really looked at it within the context of specifically looking for nociception, as far as far as I know, and I've I've looked pretty quite a bit. <laughs> so speaking of histology, I wanted to take a minute to just um, to to plug your blog, which I looked at today. It's neurodojo. Neurodojo. Train your brain. Right, and today's post, which yes. I don't know when you had time to post that because you've been gone. Uh, you can schedule time. things. It's great. <laughs> it's <laughs> the internet. Automation. It, it, it is. Um, so today you, you, you have a post critiquing um, some of the, I guess, what, what you call grandiose, or what you, I guess, might think are grandiose um, claims of in the name of connect, connectomics yes. that are going on. I was wondering if you could sort of give us a little teaser and get people to sure. log in. So, well, actually, log. plug for invertebrates. Invertebrates were the first things to have connectomes, right? Cenoribdalis elegans, 302 neurons, a heroic effort to map every synaptic connection in a wild-type individual using electron microscopy, which was the 19, late 1960s, I think? No, maybe sure. later than that. Later than that, I think. Okay, well, whenever it was. But I still say that it was heroic. That was amazing. And in crustaceans, the stomatogastric ganglion, not the entire nervous system, but a very interesting part of the nervous system, completely worked out every synaptic connection in that ganglion, and that's responsible for chewing and digestion and so forth. So we've had, in, neuro, in neuroethology, we've had complete connectomes okay, for a couple of decades now. And now we have some people who are talking about, well, we want to build the connectome for a human being. We want, we want to be able to map every synaptic connection in a human brain. Okay, great. I say, let us try to accomplish that task. Now, 
because we will learn so much. We will learn how to go through and do huge amounts of data processing and throughput and analysis, and we'll be able to automate, and we'll get so much information. But where I am I'm getting nervous is that I'm seeing um, people saying, oh, and that's going to tell us, that's who we are. That's going to unlock the secret of human identity. And you're not even overstating that. That's actually what that's people what are that saying. people are are pitching that idea <laughs> as this is going to give us the answer, okay? And it will, you know, tell us all these these sorts of things. And that's wrong. <laughs> it's that flat simple because, as I said, in the invertebrates, we we've been there, done that, got the T-shirt and the hat. It's yesterday's news. <laughs> It is completely yesterday's news because people thought when they had the, the, the wiring diagram, the circuit for the somatogastric ganglion, and they knew every single synaptic connection within that circuit, that they would be able to tell what the patterns and the processes coming off of that was going to be. And that was, we learned, as I said, we learned a lot. Okay, so I'm not dissing the project as being worthless, okay? But what we then learned was we are just getting started. And that was the point where we started to figure out about how important neuroactive chemicals are, neuromodulators, neuroactive hormones. Um, you look at the crustacean stomatic gastric ganglion now and how many different neuroactive chemicals are known to be present in those neurons released or, or released from other neurons that project in there um, and affect the pattern in physiologically relevant ways. And the list of, of neuroactive chemicals uh, is, well, just to, let me, before I, I give that number, keep you in suspense. Sorry, podcast listeners. Just let me tell you a little bit about the crustacean stomatogastric ganglion. Again, it varies a little bit from species to species, but you're talking about 32 odd neurons in the entire thing. So tracking out the entire connectome was possible. The entire wiring diagram was possible there. So you're talking about a small number of determined cells. The synaptic connections are anatomically fixed, you know, it consistent from individual to individual. Um, you know, we know those synaptic connections. The number of neuroactive chemicals that are in those 30 some odd neurons is I think 30 or 40. If you see the map of them, it's a scary looking diagram. And it's, as I said, it's neurotransmitters, it's neuromodulators, it's some chemicals that act as both neurotransmitters and neuromodulators, it's gasotransmitters, it's hormones. And it's, and they keep finding more. And it turns out that each one of them can, can some of them do subtle things, but you can completely reconfigure that anatomically fixed circuit. So some neurons that are under one situation are bursting and they participate in a slow rhythm. You put on the right neuromodulator and they suddenly are bursting faster and they're participating in another rhythm. Or they go silent, or this happens, or they become arrhythmic. And pretty much every permutation and combination of these things that you can think of um, has been there. And so what did the connectome tell us uh, in the stomatogastric ganglion? It told us that 
it didn't it did not explain the behavior. It sounds like the fully. it sounds like the original original gnome, right? The genome. Yeah. If we have the genome, we will know what it is to be and, human. And I, and we will so, know every single amino acid that does everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we will and, know everything. And and this, this was because the, the the post this morning of a few people have have picked up on it and have been retweeting it, and so it's it's uh, I've been getting some comments and feedback. And one of the things that somebody asked me about it's like. Um, you know, do, do you think pe the people who are proposing this, do they really believe this? And, and this is kind of my question as coming up from the genome is it's like, yeah, I wonder that. It's like, do they really think that this is going to be the answer? Or is this just, do they believe their own hype? You know, it's, it's kind of the thing that I, I wonder and I, I don't know. The technology to, uh, that they employ in, in, in uh, completing the human genome as you said, connecting on the, the, the technology, the sequencing technology, and, and evolved at uh, a lightning pace to gather the data of the human genome. But what they found after they completed it was that uh, the speed at which they can collect data did not was not kept up with the pace of actually creating information, and that the map of the entire human genome doesn't give any information to the right. multiple levels of transcription and translational regulation that are involved to make a human. And then they would go back, and then they only had one human which doesn't give any uh, information about the variability of humans, and then they didn't have any information on microbiome, looking at the various uh, uh, symbiotic organisms that you still don't know what a, being a human is if you don't have the flora of the various, uh, and so they, at the end of the day, they knew all they had were more questions. But, but as I, you know, genome, great, connectome, great, you know, as I said, We'll learn so much. It will make so many things possible. So I'm not, I'm not, I want to make it absolutely clear that I'm not dissing the idea of doing that as being yeah, bad science. On, but let's not go crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's, let's just be realistic about what we can expect out of that because we've seen what we get out of that and it's, and it's never, it's always, it's the beginning mm -hmm. of projects, not Ding, we're done. Everybody go home now. Which in itself is incredibly exciting. So, But yeah, I, wanna, I wanted to plug that. And I also wanted to plug your um, Nociception in the Real World Symposium. Yes, I'm very excited really about quickly? that. So the, we are, uh, as I said, we're, we're neuroethologists. And the International Society of Neuroethology has a meeting every other year. And this is its on year. Uh, it is going to be held at the University of Maryland. And along with a couple of other uh, co-conspirators, I am organizing a uh, symposium called Nociceptors in the Real World, uh, where we're going to have people talking about nociception in fish and naked mole rats and squid and fruit flies, and it's going to be wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. So thanks. This has been lots of fun, guys. Uh, this is, thank you, Zen, folks. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.